Oh, that is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> look at your look on your face. <laughs> oh. oh, dear. I mean, I should probably say it, shouldn't I, for the episode. Yeah, you should. But we've been chatting about the film Super Argo and the Faceless Giants for the last, I mean, at least 30 minutes, maybe longer. And I've just realised that I wasn't recording. <laughs> So we're going to have to do it all over again. I've just about had enough of you. I think you'll be able to respect a husband who's probably pulled the scientific boner of all time. In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Irony, one of the funniest forms of humor. I have made a woman. The tinsmith forgot to give me a heart. Think all is never wrong. Never Hello, and welcome to another episode of 50 Years of Shit Robots with Stephen Murray. Oh, hello. Am I top of the bill? Yes. And me, Matt Brown. The The fun is, is that we've already done all this, haven't we? We've like had yeah. a really thorough rehearsal of this. And? Go on. <laughs> I mean, shall I do robot news again? It wasn't that interesting, was it? Oh, I probably, think I, think I probably ingen- would have cut it out. Ingenuity's lovely. No, and then you can oh, do ingenuity. your joke. You can do a I joke about what, what, what robot joke hands. <laughs> I like that. I like that joke. Okay, all right. Okay, so you do your robot news first, then. So a little bit of sad robot news as Ingenuity, the uh, the the helicopter, um, has died. Yeah, the, it's uh, was on Mars. Yeah, it's on Mars. Was it the first? That? The first. Like non-Earth-bound flight. Yes. This, what was the what was the sort of special thing about it? Uh, the special thing was it had a tiny little bit of material on board that came from the first powered flight That's from the right. Wright brothers' uh, plane. That's right. Yeah. And if you want to find out more about Ingenuity, then go and listen to the Advent episode we did about it. It's probably about I think it's Advent number four, three or four. Because it was really early on in December when we did that. There is a sad little photograph of it where, oh. where it landed. And, um, did it make little sad bleeps as it died? It's it it is actually it it damaged the rotor, so it's probably still sort of sending signals that'll get fainter and fainter. So we're just oh, uh, that is sad. Dragging it out. Um, the two bits of robot news that I have are first of all that CERN. Um, the people who've made that massive Hadron Collider um, have started to employ robotic dogs or robo-dogs to patrol the, the collider um, and sort of sniff out any radiation. Ooh, and spot the dog. If there's radiation. Well, it's one of the ones we talked about. It's called Unitree Go. Uh. It's, the one, the, it's the one where in the advert for it, there's a man doing some jogging. And he, and he runs alongside, the dog's running alongside him and he's, the dog hasn't got a head. And then the man stores it in, in the boot of his car. Let's <laughs> pop this headless dog in the boot of my car. Yeah. Uh, I believe when we, we said it before, you, you then said... Wow. Where you always put headless things. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a bit of robot news. And then in the other bit of robot news, which is slightly sadder, uh, I'll just read you the headline. This is from the Huffington Post, so I've no idea how, how accurate it is or not. But the headline is, Cancer patient died from intestinal tear caused by surgical robot. 
Now, I think we need to understand that these little robots, they don't have their own agency. They're right. They are operated. <laughs> yes. So it's not the robot that's done it. Yeah, I'm with you. It's not like C-3PO has just got, got no. gone in there. And I don't know, Rob. So this week, the robots have have given with one hideous metallic claw and taken away with the other. <laughs> they have. I like that. <laughs> okay, right. Uh, do you know what? It's going to be good though. Now we've because we've been through all of this once. I think we, this is going to be a super tight episode. <clears throat> yes, come on, let's make it super tight. So the film that we're looking at this week in our journey through 50 years of robot film history between 1927 and 1977 is the film Super Argo and the Faceless Giants from 1968. Now, I noticed when we were in the 50s, when we were looking in the 50s, there was one year, which was 1954, where there were four robot films that came out. Uh, There was Devil Girl from Mars, Gog, Target Earth, and uh, Tobor. So uh, we, I remember us saying that it was like a vintage year because so many, so many films had had uh, had robots in, and '68 feels a bit like that because we've had Barbarella. We're about to have 2001: A Space Odyssey, um, and we've got this film, Super Argo and the Faceless Giants. So I mean, I've often wondered why there are. I suppose. You know, why are there some years where you've got like loads of films and there are some years? Because the next, like 69, has no robot films in. I think the plethora of the 50s ones comes out of The Day the Earth Stood Still and Gort because that was ma- massively influential. Uh, but what about the, what about 68 then? What's happening? Actually, I know what's, I know what's going on. What's going on? Space race, isn't it? Space, yeah, the space race. All things science fiction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll go with that. Because 68, was it 68 or 69, the moon landings? 69. 69. But the old JFK had done his speech in, well, it must have been, was it 60 or 61? Where he sort of uh, says, and we will go to the moon because it is there. Many years ago, the great British explorer, George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked why did he want to climb it? He said, because it is there. Well, space is there. And we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there. And new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Thank you. But maybe that's why there's loads of robot films in 68. All of this is percolating in the 60s, isn't it? Yeah, and it's all on TV. It's the zeitgeist. Yeah, it is. And then, then lo and behold, we've got three films all about, well, Barbarella and 2001 about space travel and Super, <laughs> Super Argo. <laughs> the Super Argo film is sort of not about anything, really. No. <laughs> but it is there because it, it is. is there. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we choose to watch Super Argo? Oh. Because it is there. Because um, Stephen made me. <laughs> Stephen Murray made me watch it. <laughs> so Super Argo is an Italian-Spanish copro from 1968. It was written and directed by Paolo Bianchini, who is credited as as, um, as Paul Maxwell, 
in the film. Um, and it is a sequel to the film Superargo versus Diabolicus. And um, uh, Paolo Bianchini has had some other amazing films. I just want to just, just talk very quickly about because this has got such great names. So in 1968, he made Superargo and the Faceless Giants. He also made a film called I Want Him Dead. Uh, he also made in 68 the film God Made Them, I Kill Them. And then in 1970, he made the film Hey Amigo, A Toast to Your Death. Is he a uh, bit angry? I think he is a little bit angry, isn't he? Angry I- and shouty. <laughs> <laughs> but all of those films, I can imagine Tarantino having films called those. Oh, yeah. I bet he watched these when he was working in the the uh, video store. Yeah, I bet he did as well. But also, uh, Paolo Bianchini is still alive. Hey. He's 93 years old. So potentially could be listening to this podcast. Uh, in which case, I'd like to say ciao to Paolo. And I hope you don't hate us after you finish listening. I listen to your podcast and I want to kill you. <laughs> so, a quick run through the cast, because there's a couple of nice things that, uh, that are going on. You've got Ken Wood playing Superargo, and Superargo is, is a sort of a superhero in the film uh, who is a wrestler who dresses up in a lot of spandex. He's super handsome. He is super handsome. You basically only see his... his jaw because he's got this um, spandex suit on, this red spandex suit on, black sort of Y-fronts over the top, and then a sort of a, a half gimp mask that covers his eyes. So the <laughs> jaw is the only thing that's that's seen. But my God, what a jaw. It is. It's an it's a angular. God. It's incredible, isn't it? The square of the hypotenuse is on that jaw. <laughs> so the actor uh, is is credited as Ken Wood, but that's not his real name. That's his stage name. His real name is Giovanni uh, Cianfriglia. I'm glad you took that hit. <laughs> who is, who's been in a lot of films. He was the body double of Steve Reeves. Hey, now I was doing a bit of research on him the other day and wondering why on earth he never became a massive, great big movie star. Steve Reeves? Yeah. And I think I found out why. Probably not for this part. He was too big. Like, what, too tall? Too muscular. Cecil B. DeMille wanted him in Samson and Delilah playing Samson, and he said, "Can can you lose a bit of weight? Can you lose a bit of weight, mate? Uh, and he couldn't do it in the time span that he wanted, so he, they uh, put Victor Mature in the film instead. So he went to Italy, where we are now, right? And was in a lot of what are called sword and sandal movies. He he's a, famously was Hercules, right? Well, then maybe that's where Giovanni hooked up with him because he, he was did. the body double of Steve Reeves in Hercules. Yeah, he was. That was a nice La Ronde, wasn't it? Yes. And also, I suppose he's. He is part of a long, rich tapestry of a film actor who changes their names. Yeah, this is a big Hollywood thing. Another another guy that's in the film is Guy Madison. Yes. Uh, and Guy Madison was one of the many, many people who went to Hollywood looking for, for work and fame. And he was uh, spotted by a guy called Henry Wilson, 
who uh, was given the job by uh, Mr. Selznick to look out for talent. And he spotted him uh, and signed him up. Uh, and he appeared in quite a few movies, but then made more of uh, became more famous for TV. But um, Henry Wilson had this 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 little knack of giving these very handsome young men, yeah, very beautiful young men, changing their names. I mean, Rock Hudson is the most famous. But what was Rock Hudson's real name? Harold Scherer, S C H E R E R, and then there was Tab Hunter. <laughs> Yeah. Chad Everett, Troy Donahue. <laughs> Sounds like this, a question. Dak Rambo. Right. Ty Hardin. Yeah. Uh, and then there's some ones that we Hunk know. Hunk Darling. Hunk Darling. <laughs> Randy Van Warmer. <laughs> and then there's John Saxon, who we know. I'm sure we're <clears throat> going to come across him again because he was in a, a lot of things in the 70s that had robots in. They're not the only one, the only people who've changed their names, are no. they? I've got a, I've got a few here. Oh, of, have you got a list? Uh, yeah, old and new. So, so I'll give you the name, their, their real name, and see if you can tell me who they are. Um, Archibald Leach. Cary Grant. Cary Grant, absolutely. Isur Danielovich. Um, old or new? Old. Say it again. Isur Danielovich. Uh, I don't know. That's Kirk Douglas's name. And we'll do one more, which is Mark Sinclair. Oh, come on. You could use that name. That's a great name. Why Ma- change that? Mark Sinclair. Well, they've changed it to an extraordinary name. Oh, that's, that's his original name. Yeah, Mark Sinclair is his original that's name, fine. and it's changed to Vin Diesel. <laughs> it sounds like a more expensive fuel. It does, doesn't it? So I suppose there's lots of reasons why why people might change their names, um, but particularly in Mark Sinclair's case, I suppose you just want a, a name that is just incredibly memorable, don't you? Who was the wrestler you mentioned? Big Daddy was um, Shirley Crabtree. That was his That's name. Class. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's so good. I mean, that would make you want to beat people up, wouldn't it? If you just kept <laughs> yeah. taking the P out of your name. Well, that really reminds me. Of, I mean, one of my favourite songs when I was a kid was the Johnny Cash song, A Boy uh, Named Sue, which that's, that, that sort of leans into that, doesn't it? Yeah, a bit tough love, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, having worked in the radio, the British radio industry, for, for most of my working life, there are so many people who change their names or have their names changed for them, probably is perhaps more accurate. I yeah, once but... worked with a woman whose name was Barbara and they wanted to change her name. They made her change her name to Michelle because they thought that Barbara was too, just, you know, too, too common. Ooh. I know. It's like, how dare you? I think Michelle's a bit, a bit sort of East Ender common, isn't it? Michelle, it is a bit, isn't it? Michelle. Michelle. All right, Michelle. All right, babs. <laughs> yeah, Barbara. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so um so yeah so so showbiz is just absolutely littered with people who change their names it's bonkers it is yeah and including one or two people in the film superago the superago what's this i've completely forgotten what the film's called 
Super Argo and the Faceless Giants. <laughs> the faceless Giants. So, so we mentioned fa- Guy Madison and his yeah. name change, and he plays Professor Wendland Wand. Which <laughs> is a splendid name. And he's the villain. That's not a villainous name. No, Wendland. Wendland Wand. It's such an odd... I mean, Wendland is... I mean, has anybody ever been called Wendland? It sounds like a surname. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It's such an yeah. odd name to pick as your for your villain. And wand. The faceless giants in the film are the robots in the film, and and Professor Wendland Wand has created this army of of robots, but they don't really live up to their name very well. Do they? <laughs> no, they are neither faceless nor are they giants. No, you could got... say they're they're quite broad, but they're not. Super yeah. tall to make them gigantic. No. And they've got what looks like stock they've got stockings on their faces. So they're all of their features are sort of a bit sort of like distant and also all smushed up. They've got chunky metal fists that have got rivets in them, and the outfit looks even tighter than David Hemming's outfits as Dildano from Barbarella. Yeah. And it's the same colour. It's kind of like they're this mucky brown. Yeah. I was listening to somebody talking this week about Chaucer and um, they were saying that when Chaucer was a kid, so Chaucer came from a sort of like a, a middle-classy sort of background, but he yeah. got a job in a, in the court of a like a cousin to the king. And apparently, I love this detail so much, he would cut a dash in the court because he'd wear, I can't for the life of me remember what the outfit is, but it's sort of like a tunic um, with a with a skirt, but the skirt was, was so short that his his buttocks and genitals were constantly <laughs> on display. <laughs> and the outfit, really, the, the outfit that the robots have is not dissimilar to that. It is very similar to that. <laughs> a Chaucerian. Cho- I was just about to say that they're Chaucerian <laughs> outfits. Wow. Yeah. One thing about the the robots in this, because I've I read something, and I, I don't think it, I don't think it is talked about in the film. Maybe or maybe I missed it because there was an awful lot of the film that I missed because I watched it on YouTube, and and they've done it. They've got a cut of it on YouTube where it doesn't fit. The aspect ratio is all wrong, so it means that if any if any character is is standing on the edge of frame, they're completely invisible. So if you've got two characters standing on opposite sides of the frame having a conversation, then you, you can't see either of them. It is in Panavision and it's cut right down. So right. it's something like a third of the action is completely obscured. But it meant that I, there were there were, might be aspects to the plot that, that sort of like went over my head. And I couldn't, I'd read that Professor Wendland Wand was kidnapping wrestlers which and and athletes, athletes which is which is general. the plot of the sto- of the plot of the film is that someone is is kidnapping a load of athletes including wrestlers and and that Wendell one was using those kidnapped athletes at, to turn them into the robots but i don't think that's in the film at all is it no i did see one trailer where there's a there's a little clip in it where people have been turned into robots they're in like a machine oh, okay but, uh, that's it. That doesn't turn up in the film. And I, I rented the film. So I had a, a very good film with proper aspect ratio. So maybe it isn't, maybe that is part of the story then, but it's been cut out 
the film. Well, we but, do find this in the in the uh, Japanese films that come over that they're completely recut, and Roger Corman had a, always did that. Right. He, he would turn them into completely different films. So <laughs> when this came over, it will have been it will have been cut. And uh, and when this was shown in America, it was shown on a kids' matinee. Ah, okay. So it might have had to have been any anything gratuitous would have had to have been cut out. Yeah. Yeah. So Wendland Wand is kidnapping athletes, maybe to, maybe to turn them into robots, maybe not. We don't know. And then he's using the robots to go and do bank jobs, get loads of cash from bank jobs. Yeah. But but that seems to be the extent of his criminal activity. Yeah. Even though he's got an, a beautiful, like villainous lair. With this gorgeous lo- castle, loads of yeah, lovely castle, loads of like underground caverns, and rooms full of strange and expensive-looking technology that he can use to control his faceless giants. Um, but is it? Is he doing it? Is he doing it all for anything more than just robbing banks, or, or is that it? No, I think that's it. The only thing he he does is twiddle knobs and takes his glasses on and off quite frequently. They are nice glasses, though. They are gorgeous glasses, I must yeah. admit. And he is a handsome, handsome man. Yes, our Guy Madison. Yeah. No wonder he was picked up on the streets of Hollywood. <laughs> but eventually, uh, Super Argo, the uh, hero, and his his sort of mystic sidekick. What's his mystic sidekick called? Kamir. They managed to defeat Wendland Wand. Um, by running around very, very fast in woods, and also by using what I, one thing I didn't understand actually about Superargo is that he's got lots of powers. Yeah, but are Tell they me- are they all just learnt, or is he is he is he supposed to be like a sort of supernatural? He he had telekinesis powers in the previous film, and he also had fast coagulating blood. Uh, the levitation. <laughs> what, does, what does that? Was- what is the advantage of that? He heals really quickly and then okay. he can get up and punch again and throw people over his shoulder yeah. a la wrestling technique. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, the levitation was taught to him by Kamir, his mystic. Can we just say this bizarre, so, really bizarre bit where he, he, Super Argo comes up with a plan to get himself into the lair. Yeah. Now, Super Argo in the first film killed somebody accidentally in the ring and vowed he'd never wrestle again. Right. But then um, the, so, some agent find out that he had all of these powers and super fast accelerated healing process, so he was brought in as a spy, still wearing his outfit. Mm. And so he decides in this film to go back into the ring, announce his, his, it's gonna, his super Argo is back and he's going to do a fight, and he wins the fight, and then he gets kidnapped. Yeah. But he's not. It wasn't him. He's in his car behind the kidnappers, following them to the lair. But we never find out what happened to the body double. No, we don't. And actually, surely, if he wanted to be, he wanted to be kidnapped so he could go get into the lair. It would have just been easier to have been the person who was kidnapped, wasn't it, rather than following the person who was kidnapped? Yep. It's so weird. There's also there's quite a, a lot of. It reminded me a little bit of um, True Detective. Some of the dialogue. What? Oh, a, I can't wait for this. There's a scene where where Super Argo and Camille are demonstrating their their sort of skills, and he he's talk, and he talks in sort of like you know spiritual riddles, and he says at one point, "We're just victims of hallucination. 
Even if we are, the imagination has more truth than reality itself. Is that Matthew McConaughey? Which, fans, which felt very Matthew McConaughey in <laughs> <a> True Detective. <laughs> <laughs> at, this, at that point, I wasn't sure if I was dreaming him or if he was dreaming me. Can you stop talking about those kind of things when you're in the car? <laughs> sure, I'll bet all that is wrong. About what? Death not being the end of it. I like the way it was directed. For the first sort of thirty minutes, I was quite into it because it's quite it's quite dynamic and there's crash zooms and yeah. funny lenses and it's just all. It's I thought it was all really nicely done, and then it just descends really into watching Superargo Camilla running around as fast as they can through woods whilst being bouncing pursued, on trampolines, <laughs> bouncing on hidden trampolines, and being pursued by robots. And that that it take that takes up a really long bit of the film, which is quite boring. And then Wendland Wand runs through this forest, being chased by Superargo, and and sort of kettles him into a, a some quicksand. Yeah, a tiny bit of quicksand, <laughs> uh, which which is literally just a pile of leaves. Yeah, and then uh, one thing I did find slightly shocking is that. When he's in, so Wendland wanders in the quicksand and is sinking, and Superargo doesn't attempt to help him. He just, they just, he just turns and then starts running, <laughs> bouncing or trampling, bouncing again. off into the distance. <laughs> Very strange. What do we think of the robots, the faceless giants? They were quite punchy. I mean, they were they were heaving some blows to the policeman, and they were yeah. flying all over the place. They had a lot of head. They. they they did look a bit skanky. <laughs> a bit dirty. A bit dirty. Yeah, I know what you mean. They almost looked like they were kind of decaying. Yes. I, well, I mean, if if they are formerly people, then perhaps they are decaying. That was never really fully explained. No. We had, um, the, 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 we had the little panel in the chest taken off with some 1960s uh, transistor radio circuitry underneath. Yeah. Which was quite funny. But they yeah. did have human heads on them. What do you think? Like, if we've got, we we give them a number for uh, mark out of five for the way they look. What would you say the way they look? Oh, thrown together, two. Yeah, and what about then? We give another mark out of five for for, for fit for purposeness. Did oh, did they that. did they do what they were intended to do? Yeah, they did. I suppose they robbed banks pretty pretty well, didn't they? Yeah, and they did. Uh, um, they didn't ever stop Superbrook. <laughs> there were so many no. scenes where. Where Wendland Wand was observing the battle between Superargo and his and his robots from a distance via CCTV cameras, and he would there was maybe three times this happened where he would be sort of like, Haha, "I'll get him now," and, and then two minutes later he's like, "Curses! He has, he's fooled me again. He's you know he's he slipped through my grasp again." So I'd say that they weren't very good at doing that. No, and uh, I think it was Amir that developed the uh, electronic gun that that froze their circuitry. But then, a little bit later on, when they were fighting in the caves, because he releases a lot of the athletes, Super Argo releases these athletes, and then he shouts to them all, "Hit them in the chest where their heart would be," <laughs> and that seems to disable them as well. Yeah. So fit for purpose, they did rob the banks and they did kind of thwart the police, but they were very easy. Banished. Yeah. Yeah. So what? What should we give another them? two? Another two. So four out of ten. Yeah, they are shit robots. We have now reached the point where we're going to start our odyssey. Oh, now 
nice one. Watching 2001 and talking about how maybe one of the most significant robots we've we've chatted about and probably the most significant film it it's uh it's number 2 in my pivotal moment in science fiction films right Lecture. so we're going to start things off we're going to be doing a few episodes on 2001 and uh, i think we should maybe kick things off with a look at arthur c clarke he's yeah. very influential and then we'll have other episodes delving into specific areas of the film 2001. So, lots to look forward to in the coming weeks. We'll see you again in a week's time for some Arthur C. Clarke and 2001 action. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Who are these faceless giants? What do they want? Who's behind it? I don't know where to begin. Have you got any ideas?